Today's episode features none other than Scott Ambush, um, bass player extraordinaire for Spirogyra. Um, Scott is also the first person to feature um, as part of my isolation lockdown interview series um, because nobody's touring these days. Um, face-to-face interaction is uh, it's not really encouraged so I decided I may as well um, bite the bullet and start putting out some Zoom slash Skype interviews. So Scott was kind enough to agree to be um, a part of this. Uh, he was actually meant to be here in Melbourne with Spirogyra on tour but obviously that got canned because of the, the coronavirus so I thought well he was meant to be here so um, maybe we may as well do the interview anyway um, over Zoom and it went really well there's a few kind of little audio glitches here and there um, I, I hope you'll be able to just um, look past that um, and enjoy the content it was really great um, chatting with Scott we had pretty pretty long chat um, he also makes his own basses so we talked a little bit about that the little clip at the start um, Scott sent me uh, and that's him playing his playing his own bass he's working on a new little bass bass feature so that's pretty cool um, yeah and, and we we just kind of dive into a whole bunch of different things influences um, techniques uh, his, obviously his amazing career a um, little bit about cars as well he likes to tinker with cars so yeah um, Scott's one of my favourite um, bass players in that in that style uh, his slap tone and playing and pocket is just unreal so if you haven't already go and check out some Spirogyra um, one of my favourites is Down the Wire if you want to give that a listen um, so before we head into the interview um, I just want to say as always big thanks to FBase for sponsoring um, this little podcast. Um, FBase have been handcrafting guitars and basses for over 40 years and offer contemporary as well as vintage inspired designs. So if you're in the market for a new instrument, head on over to fbase.com and um, give Marcel and George a message about what it is you're interested in. Um, the music that's playing just now is a bit of a sneak peek for you guys depending on when you're listening to this obviously but it's um it's a new track from my band pickpockets upcoming album so stay tuned for that release it should be coming out fairly soon um there'll be some video content and stuff so why not head over to pickpocket funk on instagram and facebook uh smash like and subscribe and all that um and be ready for some new music you can also check out this interview on YouTube on the Bass Lessons Melbourne YouTube channel. So head on over there, subscribe to that. Um, anyway, here we go. Episode 59. Who'd have thought we've got this far? Um, Scott Ambush, everybody. Thanks for listening.
All right. When are you ready? Uh, hey, guys. This is Craig from Bass Lessons Melbourne. And for today's player profile, I am joined by Mr. Scott Ambush. How are you, Scott? I'm good, Craig. How are you doing, man? Yeah, pretty good. Um, you have the privilege, I think, of being my first ever uh, video Skype distance um, How cool interview. is this? This is actually my first... We're both uh, virgins at this. This is my first uh, video I've given. All right, video well, interview I've given. We'll be gentle. It was, it was a little bit of a. <laughs> it was interesting setting it up today. I thought, you know, about an hour before I'll start setting it up, and then I thought better of it. And there was, you know, I, it was like hours and hours before working out the bugs and everything. You know, <laughs> getting so, getting some light because it's just uh, it's um, eight oh five p.m. here, so the lights def, def, just starting to go down. Yeah, and it was beautiful, beautiful natural sunlight here earlier, and but it, so yeah, get the lighting together. Yeah. Be in the uh, dark. Yeah, because normally, um, you know, I do these things face to face, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the first questions that we you usually get into is, "So, what are you doing in Melbourne?" <laughs> <laughs> if only I could answer that question. Yeah. I know. So you you were I was really bummed last, that that didn't happen last month, I think, with Spirogyra. Yeah. 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 But obviously, yeah, due I, to the uh, the global coronavirus pandemic, all of that's been put on hold for the. Uh, foreseeable future i think absolutely absolutely yeah we're um i call it the rolling back blackout you know as we go forward in time the dates start to cancel and we go forward and we cancel dates and so right now um everything uh up till august is canceled right um and uh we'll see what happens i mean they're starting to open up the country here for better or for worse yeah. I uh, I don't think it's such a good idea the way they're doing it. Um, yeah, I think because it a lot de- of the place depends on. Oh, how I was just gonna say. It. <laughs> Go ahead. I think it depends on how responsible people are, you know, afterwards whether they've been scared yeah. enough or. Yeah, well, you know, here people are. Uh, it's about half and half. There's people who are very responsible, and there's a whole group of people who are, who are just. Uh, railing against the idea of being restricted to do from doing anything you know and um uh, i just saw on the news that there's a, a new I forget what city it was some city in minnesota where there's a big meat packing plant the um number of cases went up 450 percent recently that's, in the last you know that's, days that's really it's really interesting because there was a a kind of spike here a few days ago mm-hmm. at a meat plant as well, not far from me. So right, right, something to do with meat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all those people. I mean, you know, these the plants here are. are one plant had a thousand cases. I don't know how many, what Jeez, percentage yeah. of the workforce that was, but a thousand cases in one plant. So, wow, you know, there's a lot where, of people in there. Where are you? Um, where are you based? I'm about forty miles from DC. <clears throat> okay 40 miles from dc 40 miles from baltimore it's kind of an equilateral triangle so i'm on the east coast of the u.s yep has that always been home area for you yeah yeah i was born and raised in this area you know i lived uh always in the general vicinity you know never farther than about 50 miles from where i i grew up okay cool and um and so what you know how old were you and what was the uh, impetus for for getting to the base? I was twelve when I started, and um, just, I just um, a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, just a few years ago. Yeah, 
You notice how I skirted that question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was 12 when I started, and um, <clears throat> I wanted to join a band, you know? And there was a band that existed, but my buddies were starting a band, and uh, they were brothers. They both played guitar, and I wanted to play drums, but a neighbor already had a drum set, so the band needed a bass player, so I became a bass player. And that's about the long and short of it. It's pretty, much the, it's pretty much the universal story, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you you know, you do you. So many of us started playing to keep up with our friends or to get girls. So yeah, that was both. You know, it was some of both. All, you know, all, I was twelve, so I wasn't taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I was twelve. At twelve, I, the girl thing was probably less important than keeping up with my guys, but that soon changed for sure. Sure, yeah. So then, did you get like formal formal training in school or private lessons or anything like that? You know, I took private lessons for just a couple of months. Um, and, you know, learned how to tune the bass, learned a couple of Neil Diamond songs. I mean, Neil uh, Young, not Neil Diamond, Neil Young songs. <laughs> I'm a big Neil Diamond fan. Is it, anyway, is it Neil Young Freudian, songs. Freudian right there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, I'm not 12 anymore, you know, I guess as we get older, you know. We go from Neil Young to Neil Diamond, maybe. I don't know. But anyway. Hey, uh, we'll take any gig that's going these days, right? <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll play with uh, Neil Sadaka at this point. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't beat up on Neil Sadaka anyway. Uh, so um, what was the question? Uh, we were talking about uh, I got started. Playing, yeah. Start 12. Yeah, so yeah, that's right, right. Neil Neil's Young. We learned Neil Young songs, and then um, from then on, I've been uh, pretty much been self-taught. You know, I was fortunate that I uh, had a natural aptitude for it, and um, so I was always playing, you know, with guys who were older than me, so I, I really picked up a lot from them, and I've always been interested in, you know, uh, my own study, studying on my own, so um, uh, books and listening to the records and stuff like that. So that's how it started. Yeah, right. So what, I mean, who were some of the the hot acts or bass players going around at that time that would have been a kind of formative influence on you? Yeah, at that time, probably my biggest earliest inf uh, early influences was uh, Larry Graham. The Graham Central Station was big. Um, Brothers Johnson. Sly and the Family Stone, for sure. James Jameson, because my... Mother listened to to a lot of uh, R and B, Aretha Franklin, stuff like that. She was a, actually a gospel singer, but she listened to a lot of the the secular artists that also crossed over into gospel. So Aretha Franklin, Etta James, Al Green, yeah, Curtis right. Mayfield. <clears throat> I grew up listening to a lot of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> and then um, and then got into the funk thing. And then. I heard uh, my cousin Alan turned me on to uh, Return of Forever, and I lost my mind. Right. And <laughs> at that point, you know, made it left into the fusion thing. Sure. So um, how, how, roughly how old were you at that point? Uh, 16. Okay. That's, that's a, a good yeah. age for um, getting excited by complex, fast music. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, then it was Return of Forever, and... Um, one of my big influences back then, after that point, was uh, actually Abraham Laborio. I really enjoyed those uh, early uh, Lee Rittenauer albums. Yeah, uh, right. Captain's, Captain Fingers, Captain's Journey. Captain Fingers is such a great album. Awesome on that. Yeah. 
Abe is just awesome on all that stuff. So, <clears throat> and you know, eventually came back around to the R&B thing. I, did, I never left it really, you know? Yeah. Was really into the Isley Brothers and um, Commodores, Birth yeah. One and Fire. It was played in, played in those kinds of bands. Some of the 70s Commodore albums are so funky. Awesome. They really are great. Yeah. Really are yeah, great. I was, I was listening to one the other day. It's got, like a, it's got like a train on the front cover. It's like a kind of brown. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah, I can't remember so, so I kind of, um, a fairly steady diet of funk, fusion, R&B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so you're just playing kind of local, <clears throat> local cover bands and right, kind of stuff. Right, right. Yeah, playing local cover bands. Um, I never really did the... Back then, there was, uh, not that it was so long ago, but but there was a a real, in the States anyway, I don't know how it was in Australia, but in the States, um, there was a real um, market for live bands in like hotels and nightclubs, stuff like that, where you'd have, be in a band and you would play six nights a week yeah. in, a, in a club or in a hotel, you know. And you would make the, there was this whole circuit, you know, a lot of bands came out of that, you know, a lot of great musicians came out of that. Um, I never really did that. Uh, I was, when I, I was playing in like an R&B band, doing, you know, R&B Motown covers, stuff like that. Um, and then when I went away to college... Uh, I started playing in a fusion band. And the other nice thing about that time was you could play in a band that was playing all original music, or virtually all original music, and still do those kinds of places, you know, or do do, do a lot of gigs, you know. Just Whereas the, now, the, you know, the, the demand for have to music be... was just, it was just what, what people checked out. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it wasn't so, uh, the, the you know, the playlist the genres weren't so restricted you know yeah now i mean you know if you're playing a band you gotta play either on the side where you're playing a lot of the justin timberlake katie perry kind of stuff or you're playing southern rock or whatever or, or that kind sure. of stuff you know skinnered um but back then you could actually be in a band and like be writing a mutual original music you know and uh so i was doing that and then uh i started touring you know, with jazz, but so I never really did like the six night a week cover band thing. Sure, but you, sometimes you were I was still playing a lot. Yeah, I was still playing a lot. Sometimes I wish I had done that because I mean, there's um, there's a whole lot of vocabulary that comes out of doing that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, learning yeah. other people's parts and stuff like that. You know, I eventually, you know, got it, but but at the time, that that would have been another side of it. You know. Yeah, and and also just you know road chops, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, playing six nights a week—that'll do it. That'll yeah, do it. it's it's a uh, it's a real shame that I mean, the only the only places you can really do that these days are on cruise ships or you know, the Middle right. East or Chinese hotels kind of thing where you go away for six months. Right, and right. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, maybe Vegas if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. The gigs. Yeah, I you know I know some people who do that in Vegas or who did it in Vegas. Um, but uh, you know, Vegas is is a you know, a little environment in itself, you know, it's kind of a petri dish, you know. 
Yeah. So there's only so many gigs there. But, you know, to be able to go out and tour doing that kind of thing, like you said, on a cruise ship or <clears throat> doing the hotel circuit, you know. Yeah. Did you ever, and, side note, but did you, did you ever come across a band called Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns from Vegas? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah they're still out there. Uh, Tom Schumann from Spyro uses them a lot on his on his projects. Ah, cool. He uses the horn section on some of his projects. Yeah, I remember um, actually uh, the trumpet player on, on uh, I did some cruise ship contracts and the, one, the trumpet player on one of those concerts, uh, one of those uh, contracts gave me a Santa Fe CD. Well, transferred mm-hmm. it from his, his hard drive to my hard drive. Right. Uh, I just remember listening to it and going, ah, oh, that's what a live big show band should sound like. Because we were yeah. in the we were in the cruise ship show band, which was oh, okay, uh-huh. good, you know. But then you hear right. you heard this live recording, and it was like, wow, that's uh, that's next level stuff. The bass player Rashawn, I think his name was. Yeah, uh, not Rashawn Ali. What's Rashawn's last name? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, Rashawn Ross. Is Great. that him? Rashawn Ross, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. awesome. Cool. Um, and so you're you've always been writing as well. Yeah, yeah. Even early on in the <laughs> early on in that like original band I was talking about, uh, we were writing. I was just laughing because I was c- cleaning up my studio and like trying to sort through boxes and stuff like that, and I found a cassette of of that original band yes. from uh, back then. <laughs> and it's actually I'm looking at it right now. It's so funny. Um, and then, then you got to find a cassette, something to play it on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Actually, I still have one of those here somewhere. But um, uh, yeah. So I was always kind of writing. That's what that band did. Was you know, you know, original material. It was kind of in the vein of um, it was vocal stuff. It's funny because we would play Weather Report tunes, and then we would do stuff that sounded like at the time like Foreigner. Stuff like that. Um, uh, the guitar player is uh, this guy Chuck Underwood, who's a really great guitarist. Was a guitarist, and he was into Coltrane before any of us were really, and Miles and stuff like that. But at the same time, he was into Hendrix. And as a matter of fact, we've recently uh, done a Hendrix uh, Joplin tribute show. Um, cool. So, so it was a really broad range of stuff. And it's funny because um, we, uh, it was a five-piece band, bass, drums, guitar, and keyboards, <clears throat> and saxophone. We had a saxophonist. And um, at some point, we decided we wanted to go in more of a rock direction, so we decided we didn't need the saxophone, so we parted ways with the saxophone. And that summer, that Foreigner tune with Junior Walker on it came out. Uh, what's the name of that tune? Uh, I can hear the solo in my head. I can't remember the name of the tune. <laughs> anyway, and we all just looked at each other and went, oh. <laughs> Damn it. But uh, Urgent. Urgent, right. Was that what it was? Urgent. I don't think I don't think foreigner. Well, maybe not, no, little, no, it wasn't urgent. What was time. it? I don't know. What's that? A little bit before my time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can't remember what the name. Of it. it wasn't urgent. It was one of the other ones. Anyway. Um. So what kind of uh, what kind of bass were you playing 
back in the beginning? The very beginning, uh, the first bass I ever had was uh, like a, I don't know where it was made, Korean or something like it. It was like an SG bass copy. It had three pickups on it. All right. And yeah, and this is another one of those moments where you look back on you go, well, you know, if I'd only known then, know what I know now. Because I went to the music store, my dad took me to the music store, and I had the option of buying a Fender Mustang with a little racing stripe on it. Yeah. <clears throat> or this bass that had three pickups and all these switches on it, it was a, like a walnut color, walnut mahogany. Yep. And uh, of course, I went for the flash. And it was of, a piece. It was of really course, right? Because because more uh, is more. <laughs> more is more. Do you want the skin? Do you want the little bass with the skinny, tiny little pickup, or do you want the bass exactly. with horns and three chrome pickups? Oh, it was awesome! It was it's awesome. not fair. It's not a fair contest. I bet you wish yeah. you still had that. I bet you wish you'd got that Mustang though and held on to it. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so uh, that's what I started out on, and then when I was in high school. I pretty much took um, ownership of the school's base. And again, this is one of those moments. It was a uh, probably 66 or 67 jazz base. Candy apple red with the matching headstock, with the custom colored headstock. And I'd say it's probably 66 or 67 because if I remember correctly, it had rosewood fingerboard, but it had block inlays instead of dots. So it had the custom color from before, but it was like one of those transition bases. And this was the school base. It was the school's base, yeah. I mean, I guess and, back, uh, back in the, you know, in that back in the day, back in that time, there wasn't that mm -hmm. many other choices for bases, so it wouldn't it's not crazy that they would have a 67 Fender because it's exactly. not, it wasn't a vintage instrument at the time, right? No, no. It was either a jazz bass or a P bass or yeah. uh, you know, maybe some school if the uh band director was a Brit rock fan, might have had a Rickenbacker or something like that. But yeah, you're right. There weren't a whole lot of yeah. uh, choices. So I played that through high school. And um, it's funny because a friend of mine later went back to the school and uh, traded them a new P bass for that bass. Smart. And then he sold it. <laughs> but And that... <laughs> But at the, you know this was uh, maybe twenty years ago, and still and still then that bass was worth three four grand, you know five maybe yeah something like that. They were they were already starting to get up there, you know. I mean, I can imagine if it had been in the school system for twenty years, it would have been maybe Might not been. well looked after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But apparently, he must have gotten some money for it. But anyway, so that's why I played through high school, and then when I played in this band I was talking about, it was called. It was actually called the. It was originally called the Rhythm Method, and then when we decided to get hit, we start. We called it the Method, and um, and so I had an Aria Pro Two. Cool. Which was actually a really cool bass at the time. That brings back memories. Um, yeah. So would this be uh, late seventies? Eighties. Uh, early eighties. Early eighties. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Early eighties. So we had an Aria, I had an Aria Pro 2. And then after that, it was a lot of custom bases. I had a, you know, a custom made, uh, there was used to be a, a couple of builders in the Baltimore area uh, called uh, Mike Kuntz and John Thurston, Kuntz Thurston. And so they had built me some custom bases, and then I had a couple of custom jazz bases and stuff like that. And then, of course, later I started building bases for myself. So Yeah. 
Do you ever, do you, you know, ever do some of the the larger brands like Ken Smith or Federa or? No, you know, I I when I started building bases, um, the first base I built for myself, I tried building one in high school. That's another story, but um, uh, it never got finished. When I built my first base, prior to building my first base, I decided I was going to switch to six string. And I actually went to Federa and played uh, uh, one of their bases. And then I came across this book on how to build guitars. And I. Which was a lot cheaper I, than buying a Federa, buying the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even then, they were super expensive. Now it's just like. Um, it's just, yeah. Buy a base or buy a car, you know? Um, uh, I actually played. You know, Anthony Jackson was his first contrabass. I guess his first contrabass was a Ken Thompson. Yep. And then he had a uh, Ken Smith. Ken Thompson? No, not Thompson. Well, it was a Thompson bass. Carl, Thompson's, Carl, was Carl Thompson? Carl Thompson, thank you. I'm, I'm <laughs> Ken Smith, Ken, Carl Thompson. Carl, Ken Thompson. Carl, Carl Smith so anyway, Ken Thompson. <laughs> right, exactly. So he had a Carl Thompson and he had a Ken Smith. And... So I decided I was going to play six string. I wanted to switch to six string. And um, so I drove up to Brooklyn and went to the Federa factory. And I, they hadn't built Anthony's bass yet, but they were working on it. And Joey said, you know, he said, we're building this bass for Anthony. We'll call you when it's done if you want to come back and check it out. And so I did. And then I came home, like I said. And at that time, there was no bass player magazine. It was just Guitar Player magazine. And in the back of Guitar Player magazine, there was a uh, ad for a book, for Melvin Hissock's book, Build Your Own Bass Guitar. Right. And uh, it was one of those fortuitous things, you know. I got this bug in my head that I was going to do it. And... I'm the kind of person, once I, that happens, it's, you know, it just, yeah. yeah, it takes hold and it never lets go, you know. So then I started thinking about wood and everything. So I went to this uh, wood supplier in Baltimore. Uh, they sold some some exotic woods. And I walked in the front door and on the book rack was this was Melvin's book. Huh. And I said, oh, you have this book. I, I just saw a review of this book. And, and the guy said, well, yeah, the, the publisher sent it to us. We didn't order it. They just sent it to us. I was like, I'll take it. So that and, you know, just taking, tinkering with my own instruments and taking them apart and seeing how they kind of went together, that got me started building. So was, was Anthony kind of a bit of an inspiration as well in terms oh, of huge. making you think, I want to play six string? Because in my head, when I think of Anthony Jackson, I really think <clears throat> low B more than I right. think mm-hmm. high, high C, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, but I guess it's yeah. just that playing across the neck instead of up and down right right yeah i mean you know race with the devil on a on a spanish highway you know the the uh al demiola tune are you familiar with that tune no not not particularly oh uh, uh, check out uh, al Jim, al demiola's album elegant gypsy okay that that tune and also uh chicoria the leprechaun that album anthony's on both of those and like on the um uh, Al Demiola tune, Anthony's playing the pick, obviously. 
back then. He, he he switched at one point, and now he plays with more with his fingers than with a pick. But back then, I think it was almost exclusively a pick. Yeah. And um, there are these 16th note lines that, you know, just, you know, and Anthony's playing them all note for note with Al Demiola. And it's just, and I heard that, and it was just like, holy crap. You know, so, it, so yeah. and they go from very low to very high, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, to, yeah, and, so that. And to do that on such a broad neck as well. Cause, yeah. Because yeah. uh, his bases aren't, they don't seem particularly ergonomic. Well, they, they are for him. <laughs> I mean, have you ever seen his hands? His hands are huge. I mean, he's not a very big guy. Yeah. But his hands are monstrous. I mean, they go across that neck, you know. And it must be like P bass spacing, but over six strings, you know. Yeah. My bases are, are my fives. And my, when I was building sixes, when I was playing six, um, were jazz bass spacing over five or six strings, you know. Yep. So it was like 19 millimeters at the bridge, and um, but but you know a little closer at the at the nut, so it made them a little more manageable. Um, so is, well, here's an interesting question: Do you measure the bridge in millimeters, but the nut in inches? Uh you, you know, because <laughs> there's this hybrid system, you know, where it's like right, three quarters. Right. And well, the thing, you know, the thing is the. Um, All the manufacturers, all the bridge manufacturers all do millimeters. I mean, that's kind of a standard spacing. 19 millimeters is kind of a standard spacing. But the, the whole base, when I build a base, the whole base, I'm, I'm dealing in inches. I don't deal in millimeters. But that one thing, it's like someone says what my spacing is, is 19 millimeters. You know, if you you know convert it to inches, I'm not sure what that is. But it's probably some weird fraction. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's get into the, the base building thing. For sure. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. What do you, What do you reckon it was that you were trying to uh, build or achieve that you felt that you couldn't get from a standard instrument or or even a custom instrument, or was it just something fun to do? Probably a little bit of both. Um, <clears throat> you know, part of it was. Uh, um, you know, I had. After my Aria Pro 2 phase, yeah. I went what, back to jazz kind of, bases. What kind of style was the, was the Aria Pro 2? Was it like a... It was like a neck through. Like an Alembic body vibe. With wings. Not unlike an Alembic, you know. Yeah. I think, Not I think quite as elaborate. Yeah. You know, they're actually really nice bases. Actually, they're probably worth some money now. I've, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen any for sale like on Reverb or anything for a long time because I think people are holding on to them. They were really, it was really a nice base. Yeah, my uh, you know my my first bass was a uh, Ibanez musician, so similar kind of okay, mm-hmm. right? You know, the the one with the mahogany wings and the through neck stuff, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I I wanted a bass. I wanted to build a bass because I because it would be fun, you know. And I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I do that. I work on cars and do that kind of stuff. And so that <laughs> that you know intrigued me. And then my idea was for it to Either have five or six strings, but be kind of harken back to my jazz bass days, you know. Okay. So when so I did actually did my original uh, design, the actually the top line of it is actually like a jazz bass. I actually copied a jazz bass because I wanted to really have that feel, you know. And then I designed the rest of it to kind of you know look aesthetically pleasing but different, 
Okay. You so, know, so the so, jazz bass was the kind of kernel of the yeah the DNA. Yeah, and it. that sound, that single coil sound. Yeah. You know, still go for that. You know, um, but it's gonna have the gonna have other options, which I try to build into the bases. So yeah, so it was uh, you know, part of it was you know a fun a fun factor, and part of it was just was looking for something that sounded like me, you know. And when do you when do you think you finally got it right? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have yet. <laughs> Surely, after all these years, you know they always end up. You know, you know. Once I got to the point where other people were interested in them, I had this thing. Well, not just that, but for me too, it became an, a question of making something that was versatile, that had that could do different things. So that's that's what I go for. I think I've gotten there. You know, I think I've gotten there for the most part. Um. So you know. Yeah. Um, and then it becomes a question of just different options. You know, my first base I ever built was neck through. Okay. And then I decided decided that wasn't really what I was looking for. Because so then they the, became the, bolt on. A big part of the jazz base thing is that bolt on connection, right? They're bolt on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then. The, uh, I'm interested to get your perspective on wood and where, you know, in, in later years, I've really come to think that the the neck wood, that's mm-hmm. a, I mean, that's a big part of the, the bass where the strings vibrate. And I think, I, I feel like that has um, a large effect on the tone as much as the body. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's... Um... I think it's you know it's it's a it's kind of it's like a gradient you know if you think about it in terms of extremes if you made the neck out of balsa wood which is I don't know if you if you that's what they call it in Australia but it's super light you know yeah. and and super and and really not very dense you know obviously that's going to sound a certain way and then once you get up into maple and ash and walnut, the really denser, heavier woods, um, the variance in the different sounds becomes much smaller. Okay. You know? So, I think, that for me, the idea is to make the neck as stiff as possible. Um, so, I make my necks, uh, they're maple, uh, and then they have graphite, carbon fiber, stringers. And not just carbon fiber inlaid inside the neck the neck is actually laminated up with carbon fiber okay actually one right here so you see that the stripes yep on there are actually that's actually carbon fiber it goes all the way through to the end of the headstock yeah okay so, so it's actually a sandwich instead of being maple and mahogany or walnut or, or yep. uh, a lot of people use purple heart or paduk um, so, so that really makes the necks really really stiff you know yeah. So I think that's really important. I think that that really transfers the the uh, vibrations to the body and it allows the body to to have more of a, a a bearing on the sound of the bass. Okay. Uh and so what what uh, what are some of your preferences in terms of bodywoods? You know, the the go-to ash and alder are really great. Yeah. Um uh and then um you know, either they're you know they're either the solid ash or alder or they have a laminated top on them, 
you know, that's mostly what I do for aesthetics. Yep. Um, that's generally just a quarter of an inch thick. Okay. Um, and that'll change the sound of the, you know, the bass too. I mean, if you use something really light and porous, like maybe a spalted maple or something like that, that's really got a lot of spalt and it's almost like a, you know, yeah. fungus. <laughs> yeah. You know, or if you laminate, say, ebony over top of it or something like that, that'll yeah. make, that'll stiffen it up. And You, you reckon and it, it, it does still affect the tone, the, the catwood? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. Um, and again, it's a matter of extremes. You miss only of a quarter of an inch. My bass is, uh, the bodies are only an inch and a half thick, whereas, uh, say, a jazz bass is an inch and three quarters. Okay. So, so they've got a lower profile. So, you know, um, a quarter of an inch is a sixth of the thickness of the body. So, yeah, it'll have some, some bearing on it. And but again, you, you know... Do you ever do any kind of um, chambering or...? Uh, not yet. What I'm planning to really okay. soon for myself... Because I had shoulder problems, and so I'm trying to get the bass as light as possible without, you know, compromising the sound too much. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, there's going to be some compromise if you make a bass lighter, but to try to chamber it in such a way that uh, that that'll be a less of a effect on the sound. Yeah. So what what do you look for when you're um when you're picking out pieces of wood? Do you have do you have somebody that you can go to and say I'm looking for something like this and they recommend it or do you wander around lumber yards kind of tapping on the, the boards <laughs> and stuff? Yeah, I have a I have a, a supplier up in New Jersey that I get wood from, uh, especially the the ash and the alder, and so I'll drive up there and sort through. It's a you know three hour drive. I'll drive up there and sort through, you know, piles, yep. you know. I'm building mostly for myself. I'm building, you know, I take some taking some orders as they come in, but the, you know, I'm not a I don't build in large volume at this point anyway. Like I said, now with this whole thing, I'm trying to just shift that way. Um, so uh, you know, if someone wants something specific, then uh, you know, I'll go pick out stuff. And so I'm buying in fairly small quantities, so I can I have the you know the luxury of being able to sort through sure things, <clears throat> and then the cap would. Um, you know, by and large, to tell you the truth, that is mostly an aesthetic, you know, decision. Um, because again, it's quarter of an inch. It does have some bearing on it in the extremes, but you know, you know, I'd be, I think you'd be hard pressed to tell the difference between zebra wood, quilted maple, bird's eye maple, uh, Curly redwood's a little less dense. That gets to be a little lighter. Um, you know, you ever use purple heart? No. Now, see, that would be on the the dense extreme. Yeah, that would be a heavy dense I've got a, wood. I've got a base that's got um, it's uh swamp ash, swamp ash body, with mm-hmm. uh a layer of purple heart and then a cap of spalted beech. Oh wow! Nice. Um, and it's it's that's a really tight compressed sound. I imagine it would be. Yeah. 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 The, the, my, the, my, the, the, my, my main bass is my F bass, which is ash maple, seventies vibe, and it's got more of that kind uh-huh. of op- open, roary dynamic thing going on. Right. Right. Yeah, I love George's basses. He makes really nice instruments. Yeah. He's a he great does. guy. He's a really nice guy too. Um, and I, nice, I like the you know, fact that they kind of took a while to enter into the, the super jazz bass realm uh-huh. as well. You know, they didn't 
to, you know, they've been building their BN and and ACFs for a while and stuff, and then they launched their vintage Fender series stuff. And I think, right. Right. I think it, you know, taking their time to get it right really paid off because that that's where I play. <laughs> I play the VF thing, and it's just killer. Uh, that's cool. Cool. Yeah, they're really nice faces. Um, so who who would be some of uh, speaking of luthiers? Who who are some of the luthiers that you've kind of taken a leaf out of their book with some of your design aspects or gone the way they do that is really cool. Um, you know, I probably you know when I first started building, it was uh, you know uh, the guys that really building back then were the main guys were were uh, uh, Ken Smith, Federa. Uh, Roger Sadowski and um, Mike Tobias. Yeah, Tobias. Mike was that when he was that was when he was in California, right? And he was right. building those bases and um, and Spectre. Okay. Those were the ma- probably the main five main builders when I first started building. And there were lesser guys like uh, Roulette Citron, you know Harvey Citron, Padula, and stuff. Zon. Padula. When I first started building, I don't know if Mike Padula was building bases at, at that point, or at least not, you know, selling them in a, you know, in a in big sure. numbers. Um, <clears throat> I but I remember getting, uh, like literature. Oh, Harvey Fleischman, who doesn't build very many bases or didn't. Okay. I don't even know what he's doing now, but I remember getting, you know, flyers or, or you know, catalogs. Yeah, from like Harvey Fleischman and the early Spectre catalogs, and and seeing those bases, and back then they were very small, you know, doing small numbers. So these were really handmade instruments. Mm. And Fleischman had these really neat designs where they had like a tuning the uh, the peghead was like an open like classical guitar oh, yeah. or like an like a classical guitar with a scroll kind of a thing, you know. And the bodies were really, you know, carved and stuff. They're really cool. Nice, really cool. So that's the kind of stuff I, that was, you know, an early influence, you know. And Tobias definitely was the, you know, the, the the layering of the different woods. And at that time, Mike was really, really into the effect that different woods would have on the sound of the instrument. You know, he had he had like formulas. Um, I guess maybe he still does. I haven't kept up with with his catalogs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, it was really like okay. If this is the sounds you're going for, then we'll do a wingate neck with maple stringers and you know walnut back and a maple top, yeah. or you could get a different top, you know. And then and he would have the sandwich like with your red, with purple heart, you know. There'd be a sandwich in there to stiffen up the body, that kind of thing. And he was really into that kind of in a science before. This was before he sold the company to Gibson and they ruined it. <laughs> um, and then you know he started making the MTD bases, and of course yeah. he's, that's a whole another chapter. Yeah, yeah, you know. <clears throat> and so then you know that's the the organic side of the instrument what about the electrical side of the instrument did you ever get into wiring your own preamps and coiling pickups not the preamps ever? not the preamps i wound some pickups okay. in my time um enough to know that you don't want to do it anymore exactly <laughs> exactly enough to know that it's you know it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fun. It was fun. And actually, one of the best bases I, I ever had was one of my very early bases, and I wound the pickups. And uh, uh, I've been thinking about either doing that, trying it again, 
or um, I mean, I have a couple of spools of pickup wire here. And at that time, I'd made my own little wire winder out of a sewing machine motor and everything. And um, uh, or getting someone to wind a set like those. And basically what they were was um, they were a large magnet, but kind of underwound. So you had, you know, more power from like a like a like a um, similar to like a quarter pounder kind of a thing. You know, the big yeah. quarter inch yeah. magnets. But wound to, I had a set of um, pre-CVS jazz bass pickups that I found along the way. I, I don't know whatever happened to them. And I had those in a bass, and I loved that bass, man. That bass sounded great. And so it was um, kind of wound to to that resistance, you know, the low 6,000, 6K, stuff like that. And it just sounded really good. It was very transparent sounding, but it still had some punch to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, now, so now everything has big magnets and is overwound, you know, or they're, you know, just standard kind of like the dual yep. eighth inch magnets and wound to pre-CBS. So, so, so what, what are some of the pickups that you kind of gravitated towards in recent times? I Bartolini for the longest time. Right. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm Bill, actually waiting on my first set of Bartolini's coming. Oh, cool. I Good found, luck. I found, I found a pair on, uh, <laughs> on reverb, um, secondhand from Russia. And, uh, I'll say yeah. again from russia i found a, a a set secondhand from russia on reverb oh okay uh-huh but um still uh in the post apparently somewhere <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i i i loved the bar barling pickups um and bill was a really great guy uh he still is obviously but um but uh, he's no longer, you know, active in the company. He, I think I don't know if he actually sold the company or not. I think he did. Right. And um, so, but he was really great because he was, you know, you could call call him up and Bill would answer the phone or he would get on the phone with you and say, this is what I'm looking for. And he's like a mad scientist. I mean, he actually worked at, um, <laughs> I think he was actually a scientist at uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs in California, which is like the big, you know, jet propulsion laboratory. Um, right. And uh, your, yeah. Oh, your screen froze for a minute there. Uh, so uh, yeah. So uh, he would, you know, I would say, you know, this is what I'm looking for, Bill, and he would just go off into this like kind of like um, how you imagine would <laughs> imagine just hold, hold, Albert Einstein phone, was holding the phone off your ear for like five minutes, going, uh huh, uh huh. Uh -huh. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he says, "Oh, well, maybe if we do this, and then we could do that, and no, but that probably wouldn't work, and you know, and we could do this." And I can't do his voice, but he had this. He really has this kind of like you how you imagine Albert Einstein would speak. Yeah, and um, yeah. so he was really great. So yeah, I used Bartolini for the longest time, and then I started, you know, branching out, trying to try some other stuff. Um, and it's, it's, uh, pro it's probably just become so much of what you expect to hear from from your sound. Does that Bartolini sound right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's funny, and I've been told this by other people, you know, eventually it always ends up sounding like me anyway, you know. Mm. I end up adjusting the bass or the EQ or something. And so then at, at one point I was looking for more of a a true traditional jazz bass sound, you know, a little more modern sounding, but but uh, trying to get him back to that sound. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Uh, Lately, I've been using Aguilar for the last couple of years. Okay. Uh, hum, but, uh, hum canceling know, or? 
Yeah, hum canceling jazz bass pickups and the Music Man pickup. Um, they have a new ceramic magnet single coil. Tumbe well, not true simple. It's single a single coil aperture, but it's hum canceling. Right. Um, that I tried at Nam at the Nam show this year. That you know, for as much as I could try it in the convention it's center, it sounded really good. Yeah. So I think I'm gonna try a set of those maybe. Yeah, actually, my um, the the last episode I just published was with uh, Dave Bunshoft. So, oh, okay, cool. Like, yeah, cool. It's in interesting. Yeah, they're great guys too. They're they're really cool guys. Um, so uh, yeah, so Aguilar in between, you know, um, Arrow. I've I've tried Arrow pickups. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. those. The, those yeah. you know were in Federos for a while. Um, uh, and maybe he's still using them in certain bases. I think they use a lot of Seymour Duncan stuff, custom-made Seymour mm. Duncan or, or uh, yeah, I think Seymour Duncan stuff. So uh, yeah, so I've tried different stuff over the years. I tried EMG. Just could never get with the EMG thing. I think you know, e EMG just, just straight up jazz bass pickups. Just you know, four string. I've tried a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, I actually I just not too long ago, last year I guess it was. They sent me a set. Um, I talked to uh, Bobby Vega, and um, and I was like Bobby because I'd heard you know Bobby. I've known Bobby for a while, and I'd heard him play some stuff. And I was like, "What is, what is that you're using?" I said, and so they sent me what was supposed to be like an EMG jazz bass pickup, like a jazz bass pickup, and it still sounds like an EMG. Yeah, <laughs> it's still, you know, what's not a bad thing really. It's just yeah. not what I'm hearing, you know. Yeah, sure. it still it sounds great when Bobby plays it, but it just it just sounds I, you know I reckon Bobby it just has that kind of it, it just has more right? than you more than you need you know what did yeah, you say right. hey, Bob Bobby could probably play a cardboard box and it would sound great. This is true. This is true. Bobby's <laughs> a bad man. He's so great. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. So so yeah. So Agar is where I am now. And and preamp. Uh, I've been using um um. Uh, John East. John oh, East preamps. Great. Yeah, yeah. I had um, I've had really a few John East preamps. I had one in my. Uh, I had a Daryl Jones Lakeland Daryl Jones. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. And um, the John East does a direct replacement for that. So I yeah, stuck that in there and that that really brought that bass to life. Yeah, they're really great preamps, you know, um, because they're kind of. They're not obviously they're designed to go in a bass, but they've come from he comes from a you know a pro audio background you know a, yeah. um, studio recording you know console you know recording console thing so it's really a preamp you know it's not a bass preamp per se it's mm. a preamp it's tailored for the bass but it just really has that kind of transparent great sound you know and and so many features that's what I really like about it. Yeah, um, super versatile. I, uh, yeah, this is probably probably not unlike the preamp that you have in your bass. It's uh, what I guess he calls the Unipre mm -hmm. four knob. So I'm gonna bring it into the frame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, uh, volume stacked with a pan. Okay. Then it's um, treble stacked with a bass. Right. Then mid range. With a mid-range, with a continuously variable rhythm mid-range, as opposed to like a three-position or something like that. Yep. And then um, a tone control 
that also if you pull it is passive. Cool. You know, and then then you just have volume and pan and a passive tone like a so jazz bass, like it's a jazz bass. Tone control that works in active and passive. Active and passive. Yeah. That, that, so yeah, that's, that's really something cool. That I never really but uh, when I got my F bass, they have that the tone control that works active passive, right? Um, and it's a really useful, absolutely knob. You know, even even though you've got bass mid treble, I still find myself just doing the classic yeah, jazz just, bass thing of volume volume, um, passive tone or tone control. Yeah, and then, then kind of go into the EQ and go. What else do I need to add in? Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of like a. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's a it's a broader eq thing you know the curve i mean it's just it's yeah it's really great yeah. you know i use it you know um you know when you're you know you've eq'd your bass and it sounds great and it has that kind of modern sound and you just want to get a little more of a you know vintage sound just roll yeah. some of the high the not even roll the high just roll the tone back roll, you know yeah yeah for, for you know more of that kind of finger style thing or whatever yeah and it's a you know it's a broader brush yeah um, so, and so uh, really cool. you've obviously got a bit of a, a bit of a studio setup happening here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's your a, um, and you know what 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 are your preferred signal chains um, for recording bass in the studio with you know Spirogyra or or at home or whatever? What do you kind of aim for? Well, um, as plugins have gotten better, it's really kind of direct in. You know, mostly. <clears throat> um, last a couple years ago, I got this uh, Antelope Audio mm. Orion Studio, Orion, twenty seventeen. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, really sounds great. Um, so I go directly into that, and then uh, use plugins in Pro Tools. Right. You know, um, either that or I use. Um, I can get a if you you know if I'm going for something specific. Where is it? Is it nearby? Um, are you familiar with the uh, Motown DIs, the a a Atlas, uh, the, uh, the, the Acme, uh, Acme, the Acme Audio? So okay. I have one of those, and then I also have a radial, the big radial DI, the one that has two channels in it. It's a J48 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yep, classic. And both of those, I got both of those after using them in the same studio. It's really funny. Um, there's a studio called um, the Clubhouse in Rhinebeck, New York. Oh, it's actually cool. before I signed on to here, I was listening to Spyro Jaya at the Rhinebeck sessions. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Great album. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. The first time we recorded there. Uh, uh, the, the uh, engineer um, Dave Antonell um, turned me on to uh, the the radial DI, and that was not the Rhinebeck sessions. That was what was the name of the one the, the one we did there previously? I can't remember, but it had it has so much. Supposedly, it has higher rail voltage than most DIs, and it just huge you know especially for funk stuff man it just had a depth about it i was like yeah. i gotta get one of those so i got one and then when we were doing um this more recent album uh vinyl tap 
which we were going for like this kind of old school vinyl thing. And he had one of those uh, Acme Audio mm. Motown DIs. And I plugged into that and I was like, well, that's a great sound too. And they're completely different. That yeah. Motown DI is, is you know, you know, very focused, kind of mid-forward, you know, really brings out finger stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the radial is great for, you know, just Modern. kind of like a broad, kind of like hi-fi yeah. modern sound. And is it... And so, it, yeah, so I'll, I'll go into a DI and then into the... the interface. Uh, interface or the yeah. recording console, as the case may be. And have you ever, um, you know, is it always pretty much just your your bases, or do you have some old P's and J's kicking around that you go, this track really needs that vibe, or you manage to pull it all from your own instrument? No, pretty much all, all using my own instruments. Cool. You know, I can get everything I need out of, out of these things. You know, nice. And this the new configuration that I'm doing now is, uh, uh, um. There's uh, two jazz bass, uh, you know, dual coil jazz bass pickups. Okay. One here, one here. You can opt to put two in this under this cover, but I only use one because two. I mean, it's a it's a different sound. It's just a thicker sound. You know, I'm not sure. I, really, I so personally really use that, it that is much. Is that kind of seventies spacing where they are? Yeah, yeah. Kind of seventies spacing. So, so this one's a little further back. So jazz bass, and then. In front of this one, under this same cover, is a Music Man pickup. Really? Because it doesn't look like doesn't yeah. look that big. <laughs> they are they are crammed in there. They barely go in there because oh, I didn't God. want it to be so huge. So, and I actually make these covers. Um, I cut them myself. So I cut them so that uh, just uh, it just fits in there. So this is the jazz, it's like the two jazz bass pickups, you know. You know. You know that kind of a Graham Central Station kind of thing. Yeah, the uh, the, the song about our um, long flowing locks that we don't have uh, yeah. anymore. <laughs> Actually, I do a version of that in, in, uh, on some of my gigs. It's called uh, it's still called hair, but I I say I, I don't believe it's fair to judge a man by the lack of his hair. So that's a, you know, the jazz bass sound. I've been having some problems. I'm getting some clicks and pops lately on my setup here. And then I go to uh, the Music Man sound, right? So is, so that, is that just with the switch? pan? Yeah, that's a, that. What, what, what happens is with the with uh, in this position, it's the two outer pickups. Yep. And we can pan between them. Okay, when you go to this position, what you have is you're basically just killing this jazz bass pickup, just okay. shunting that to ground. Yep. So now you have the, the jazz bass pickup and the Music Man pickup. Cool. And you can pan between them. Right. So, that's both pickups. So you get that, still got that thickness, but you got that little bit of scooping and a little bit of high of the Music Man. Yeah, yeah. And then roll all the way back and cut off some of the mids, the upper mids. Maybe, maybe some really of the music as well. Man 
Sorry, what's that? What's that? Maybe some of those high end as well. I always find that Music Man pickups are super bright. Right, right, right. So anyway, so just so you get that conversation. You know? Yeah, so nice. that's what we're going for. That sounds killer. What what fingerboard is on that? This is ebony. Right, okay. So you yeah. want to get a bit more of that kind of com compression from the fingerboard? Was that the idea? Right, right, right. So ebony, it's got a burled maple top on it. Cool. This one has actually got an extra thick top on it, so it's like almost oh, half yeah. the thickness of the body. So this bass has a really kind of focused... Uh, and he, he, here's a question I'd like to ask uh, Luthiers, uh -huh. how many headstock designs did you go through before you find something that you, uh, that you like? Well, I went through a few different, I mean, a bunch of uh, iterations of this same shape. Yep. Um, it was always very close to this. Okay. You know, I, I took a, lot, a long time to kind of design it so weird i'm using i'm using my ipad for this so the camera is over here but you're yeah. there so it's yeah weird. yeah no it's um <laughs> I, I i can see 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 pretty good yeah and i notice your the, this the path of your strings are is pretty straight and no string retainer so you've always got a break angle in there right right yeah that's the idea the idea um, now see you notice the uh the fret wrap on there yep um that's because uh you know i've have been you know i've had these shoulder problems for a couple of years and um so this is actually it's a zero fret neck but the second fret is actually the zero fret now it's, it's zero fret now so i'm actually this is basically sort of like a capo what i actually did was i actually pulled the first fret out and put in a new second fret i, I put in a um uh this gold i forget what they're, they're called they're, it's a really hard alloy so it doesn't wear so now the base is actually 33 inch scale right and you so you just literally just shortened the scale length just on yeah and then i moved the dots because obviously you have to move the, the fret markers on the side so the difference between this and this for my yeah. shoulder was huge you know it's just that extra little bit of that it's, move, it's the, the, the whole 33 inch scale thing is really interesting because I think for for a long time we were under the impression that if you played a five string it had to be 35 to get a good right beat. right but that's not that doesn't seem to be really be the case I don't think no you know um I mean 35 I mean it definitely it sounds different yeah but for me not different enough that it was that you know i couldn't you know make the sacrifice for my for my shoulder you know sure yeah um, have you have you ever tried the um i've got the uh the groove gear dual strap the damian airskin thing i haven't tried that specific one i've tried a, two other brands yeah. uh 
versions the, of that. The group, the group, because I, I did, um, you know, the cruise ship thing again. I was doing five, mm-hmm. six nights a week, and I had my I had my old Greco seventies P bass with me because it right. was just a kind of more of a kind of classic covers thing, and my shoulder was just. Uh, I was, you know, I had waking up with tension headaches and stuff and kind right, of right, right. up. Got this strap and within a couple of weeks, everyone was kind of back to normal. It really, really oh, worked. Cool. Did you find that <clears throat> that the bass hung differently? Uh, it it uh, takes a bit of setting up. You got to, you got to tweak the strap, but I don't really notice any difference. No. Oh, maybe I'll check, check that out. Yeah, because what I found is um, with the the two different ones that I've tried, was it because, um, well, I guess they, they're they're kind of different approaches to it. They're more of a harness kind of a thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it made the bass sit this way further. Yeah, it brought the so, headstock closer. Yeah, which was weird. And, uh, so I'm guessing that was where where the straps joined that that point was anchored you couldn't adjust where the straps joined you could adju- you could adjust just it but um <clears throat> it's the well the one that did have it had the straps came to a single point and you could adjust that right but right. you couldn't get the base high enough right on both of them because one thing that would happen because they came to a point the higher you brought the point the exactly Try and cut your head came off. up to your neck, so so it got it would only come up to a certain height, you know. Yeah. And I wear my base yeah. a little bit well, high, the, so the groove gear one has. Um, I'll just show you. Mm-hmm. So I've got it on on this guy. So right, basically this right. is strap number one. Uh huh. I don't have the other strap on there because I'm not doing any gigs just now, so uh-huh. <laughs> take that off. <laughs> And then the other strap attaches from like halfway here, and you can put it right. anywhere along this plane on on the back. Mm-hmm. So by having it like here, that that stops you from getting that squashed neck thing. Right, right. Well, the one of the bases that one of the, the versions that I have has that too. I can't remember. It was made by Two Tech Neo Tech, I think. Right. But the difference is on that one, both straps go to that. Both straps, yeah. cross things. So, so, kind of so yeah. Having, the, having just the regular strap and then the secondary uh-huh. strap to kind of balance out. Because it's just about balancing the weight on the other shoulder. Right. That's what right. you want to get. So you, so yeah, you I did some experiments with that. that. Yeah, so you can have you can actually have more of the weight on your right shoulder than the left mm-hmm. if you want, or you can balance it out a bit more. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, i have to check it out, see if it'll work. Yeah. Um, so I just hearing you... Uh, just jam there a little bit. I'd love to delve into uh-huh. your um, slap approach and technique sure. and stuff because that's sure. one of the things that stands out to me is just how how on it you are when when you're doing when you're when you're playing slap. Uh. You know, the, was, I, I said to you when I first reached out that um you know down the wire when I heard that spiral oh, right. song, I was like, damn, that uh-huh. is how slap bass should be played. And so <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks. It's just. Yeah, you it's, know, it's just got it's all funny, the things in there. It's got the tone. It's got the double stops. It's got mm-hmm. all the stuff going on, and it's it's kind of a, a bit of you know. To me, it sounds like that's part of your signature sound. Is this? It's not your typical, you know. It's not Mark King. It's a bit of Marcus, a bit of Larry, because right. it's got that greasiness. Right, in absolutely. It. But um, it's it's kind of your own thing. So I don't know yeah. how how do you still make slap bass cool. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to the degree that I actually do it, I don't know. Um, 
You know, it's just, I just, I have a lot of those influences. Um, Marcus is definitely a big, I should have mentioned that before, but Marcus is a huge influence. Yeah. Um, but he was much, he was much later <clears throat> in my development. Um, that was in the, no, nah, well, maybe not that much later, but, um, the early, um, there's a bunch of, um, David Sanborn records that Marcus produced and, and wrote for and played on. And that was when I first really got into Marcus. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a real way. And it's funny because actually one of my favorite Spiral Gyro albums, uh, even before I joined the band, Marcus actually played bass on it, was Incognito. And you right. listen to that, and that was from the early 80s, I guess. And you listen to it, and he obviously was a young guy, younger guy there, and just really starting to come into yeah. his own. But you listen to it, and it's like that's Marcus, you know? Yeah, right. Even then, um, uh, I don't remember what key was that in. Was that in D flat? You know, it's a, one of those tunes. It's a hey, Tommy no, Schumann tune. So no, nobody slaps in B flat. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. E, e or G. Well, I tell it. you, that's one of the things I I I really try to to do is. Um, not always be so dependent on the open strings on e, e and a you know um <clears throat> even though like down the wire is an e but um yeah marcus said that you know the the, the main groove is but it, when it breaks down it goes da 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 and then it comes into the solo it goes half time and marcus gets into this And you can really hit, it's like, that's, 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 you can hear the early, early kernels of stuff, you know? You know, he gets into that, that kind of thing, you know? But uh, yeah, the slap thing, um, you know, I just, one of the things I, I really try to do, um, and you know, it's, you know, with varying success depending on the day, is to, especially with the soloing, mm. like I love drummers, who, who when they take a solo, they're really improvising. There are a lot of drummers who take a solo, and it's kind of, um, lots of drum fills stuck together. Y yeah, or it's stuff that they that they that they've worked out. And they just try to string them together with little pieces of improv in between. But you know, so I always like they're going to go to boogada 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 boogada. You know, there's that thing or some kind of a paradiddle <laughs> thing they're going to go to. You know, uh, and and you know, and depending in regards to the song, the drum solo. You know, it's like you pick a different tune and it's like, okay, we'll go take a drum solo, and it's like the same drum solo. You know, <laughs> but I love guys who and can, those guys who get paid really... the same as everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so why work harder? Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. Uh, so I like that. So I, when I'm soloing, uh, I try to do that. You know, I try to 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 truly improvise to try and be in the moment instead of just <clears throat> instead of just you know you know try to get to the point where I can go you know or whatever. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you know.
you know? So, so, um, so that's, that's my, my goal, you know? Yeah. Which is much, which is much better than when I was trying to play the Brothers Johnson. <laughs> um, cause those things, you know, it's like that. It's, and it's like hair too, you know, that is like, there's, that is a bass part. That's a bass part, you know? So yeah. when you try to play it, if you don't know it, it's like, you know, how's it go? <laughs> yeah. And plus it's just, it's, it's you know, like Larry, there's, there's a bunch of guys that uh, I find I'm really influenced by, but I find really hard to emulate. Like, uh-huh. I love Larry, but I just can't, it just can't sound like him. Bernard Edwards. Oh yeah, uh, of course. Um, I can play his bass lines, but it doesn't sound anything like Bernard Edwards. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, know, those James guys Davis are true. And Johnson stuff because it's just not the the way they the the way that their hands move is different from the way that our hands move. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. The way that they combine notes together isn't naturally mm-hmm. how we would choose to do it. So that's kind exactly of all part of it. And you know, even in the realm of pure improvisation, we're still bound by muscle memory. You know, you can't absolutely you can't really play anything absolutely. that you've never done before. Yeah, to some yeah, extent. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, uh, but I, I guess you know, go, going to that kind of f- re- true improvisation thing. One of the things I think about slap bass is that it frees you up to think more rhythmically than perhaps mm-hmm. in terms of of pitch, which right. in a in a pure improvisation setting is. Um, is is easier, you know, to to some extent, mm-hmm. than having to think about connecting lines and stuff with, with the slap. But see, that's a, but, but see, thing is, I that I do think about that, you know. Yeah. Um. Because yeah. uh, that's that's. I mean, I that's what I I'm hearing. That's what I want to get across, you know. Um. It, you know, obviously, I'm not going to name in names, but you know, you see guys who. We have tons of slap technique, but it's all basically yeah, yeah. that, you know? Yeah. You know, it's basically that. Um, there's no, that's there's why no a lot of times. There's no content in there. Yeah, you know, that's why a lot of times um, when I'm, when we're working on our live show, um, and, um, you know, basically kind of quote unquote composing the bass solo, or at least. Because what I like to do is I like to obviously have some kind of form to it, okay. So that it so that it gets across to the audience, and also to give me um, some structure to improvise to. You so know? you got hit hit points along the way that you kind of want to. Yeah, that or or harmonic, you know, harmonic okay. movement, um, uh, and then you know inevitably there will be a point where. I like maybe we'll ask the band to drop out and then I can just truly just improvise there, whatever I want to do. But, um, um, like, uh, uh, the deep end mm. has a set of changes where it's, you know, a nine to C nine. Is that, that, that's to, the last track on down the wire on what is that the, the, the last track on that, um, down the wire album. No, no, no. That's what, on. What's what's the main groove in that one? Sorry again, in the deep end. Uh Ah. Uh, yeah. Ah. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm playing a live version, which has more of a hip-hop groove to it, but it's boom, boom. So that's, that's basically the groove. So anyway, the, the middle solo is A9 to C9. Oh, sorry. To F major 7. To D9. To B half diminished. F altered. F7. So it's... So, um... Uh... There's actually no bass solo on... Uh... On that section on the, on the original version. But live, I solo over that. You know, with okay. like a finger thing. And then... Uh... Eventually, a lot of times, when it comes to the slap part of the solo, which inevitably it will, because it has to. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I paid I the actually, money for. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I actually like to slap over those changes, you know? Cool. Yeah. So, um, so. On to you know to the next cool. section, but yeah, so I, I like I like to play. So that so by by doing that, it kind, of, it kind of takes you out of your your cliched licks and yeah and stuff. Yeah, like and that. it gives so, it gives the audience something gives the audience something more to hang on to hang their yeah, ear yeah. on. I mean, I, one of my biggest one of the biggest compliments I ever got was uh, we were doing a festival and and we played and then we you know were a bunch of bands on the festival and we came into where everybody was hanging out and uh, Gerald Albright, the sax player, who's actually a great bass player. Yeah. Um, said, and he says, nice to hear, hear somebody just not jam over E for a whole solo, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so yeah. So, I, I like to try to do that, you know? Is there any, um, uh, maybe any approaches or stuff that you could re recommend to people if they want to try and start to slap over, you know, jazz, essentially jazz harmony changes? Like, right. I, I noticed that, that your, your slap technique, it's not just you know, thump and pop. We've got some right. some double stops. We've got double thumping. Right, right. Is there any strumming mm -hmm. going on there? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do you would you sit down and kind of like play through arpeggios and scales using different slap techniques, or you know, how, how could how could somebody kind of try and get into to that kind of approach? Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, you know, anything that you play with your fingers, try to do it with the with the with the slap thing. You know. Um, you know, uh, arpeggios, yeah. You know, A7. Well, I'm improvising now. I'm not really doing yeah, yeah, strict, yeah. strict, strict, strict uh, rudiments, but, you know. You know, try to break up the rhythmic, different rhythmic things, you know, triplets. Yeah. 
And, you, and you're, you're, you're thumbing even on the D and the G string, which a lot of people really struggle with at the start. You're thumbing on the, on the thinner strings. Right, right, right. Um. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, that's the thing. I, you know, I, you know, I, I played um, <clears throat> sports when I was a kid. And one of the things I, I gathered from that, from primarily American football, um, <laughs> was uh, you did your practice was about preparation. You know, you couldn't go out and practice exactly how a play was going to happen. Mm. You know, but you did things to make it to make you prepared to react to things that happen. So you know, you don't practice a solo per se, or you know, like I said, you know, getting. I mean, there's a certain amount of. You know, lick practicing that you practice, but the main thing is to to practice in a way that you can do, that you can improvise, that you have those skills. So you know, part of that is learning to slap on those strings. Hmm. It really shouldn't be any different than the other strings. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then the the double trump trump thing that was something that that came to me fairly late you know um uh i'd started getting that and and that was one of those things where it really, you know really literally i sat in front of the you know it's not to, i don't recommend this but you know sat in front of the tv just going yeah yeah and was that was just because um, it's it's really Victor a hard or, thing or to, larry or what who who, who can help you to that um I think that was probably Victor. Yeah. Probably or, that was probably the or Bill the Buddha Dickens, do you remember him? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not so much Bill, but yeah, probably Victor, Victor. more than any, anybody. Yeah. Um Bill and and and, and also Marcus cuz Marcus does that thing where he goes where you know he goes Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a, a trip a triplet thing. Yeah, I do triplets like one of a bunch of different ways. That's a triplet. Um, that's a triplet. Thumb double pop, thumb thumb index middle. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's that's the hardest one to do fast. Yeah, there's the the, the, the I can the, do that the one. Two fast. thumb strokes. The the flea one I call yeah. that. The, that, that. What's oh, that? Mar the flea. Oh right, yeah. I, the double thumb. I just. Yeah. That's a hard, that's a hard one to do. But uh, uh, you know, uh, or I mean, I guess originally it's the the Lewis Johnson approach, where it's just everything is right is in and out. You know, uh, yeah, takes, takes a bit more. But it, you know, they all have their own sound as well. You know, the yeah, absolutely. The two thumb movement absolutely. has a much more articulate thing. The the double thumb, where you're going down and then up, it's right. uh, a little bit more, you know, smooth to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, and Lewis does that thing where he just plays so hard, you know. Beats on those things. Well, the way I have my bass set up, you know, it doesn't lend itself to playing that hard, you know, because right. it bottoms out. But but he you would, put, you know. And do you have um thick or thin gauge strings? I'm sorry, Ed? thick or thin gauge strings. These are these are actually I just started using these. Um, these are Ernie Balls, and uh, they just sent me a bunch of stuff to try. And um, 
These are the super slinky or extra slinky. I can't remember, but they're um, a really light gauge, 40, 60, 40, 60, 75, 95, I think, believe it or not. And then B strings, one. And then B strings are 125. 120, you know? okay. Right, yeah. okay. Um, B string doesn't, you know, a 120 or 125 doesn't really make that much difference to me. Um, because it's, it's so fat, it just at that point. Um, but yeah, I was surprised. Um, the one thing are nickel wound, which I've, you know, always been a stainless steel guy. But over time, you know, I've just, you know, come to the point where I just don't want to work that hard. It's stainless are so stiff, you know, it's such a stiff string. I like the brightness of them. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, it just my hands just, you know, I've been playing for a long time and, like I said, shoulder problems and hand problems, stuff like that. Mm. Just needed something with less tension. Yep. So I asked him to send me um, a set of lighter strings because I was looking for something lighter that didn't sound thin. Mm-hmm. And these are really good, man. I mean, the G string still has some some meat, has some meat to it. You know, it just cool. I, I'm really surprised. You know, so it's really great. Yeah, and I the find, tension, um, and they're not, and even the, though they're um, 40, 60, 75, 95, they don't feel like you're going to pull them off the neck. It's like a really nice compromise. And and that's even with the, uh, I guess I was going to say the 33-inch scale, but your bass is still 30, you know, the, the length of the string is still 30, no, it, it would be 33-inch, right? Yeah, it's 33 from nut to yeah, bridge. Right. And it still still got, still retains the tension. Yeah, I mean, I was really, really pleased with them. Um... And I'm getting used to not hearing the, the stainless steel brightness. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's one of those things. And when I first tried them, I was like, ah, these aren't bright enough. But now it's like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know? May have um, to change them more often. So maybe um, let's talk a little bit about Spyro Gyra, how that came along, what that what that journey's been like. Um, oh, it's been great. Um, you know, that came along. Uh, someone recommended me for the gig. And I auditioned. And... Actually, I auditioned twice. The first time I auditioned, I didn't get the gig. Um, they hired... Uh, I'm not sure, I don't remember exactly the chronology of it, but um, it came down to three people, and they hired someone else. I think they hired Jeff Andrews, to tell you the truth. I think that was when Jeff got the gig. That's and not Jeff a, had the gig for... Not, not, not a bad guy to lose out to, let's be honest. No, no. <laughs> Jeff had the gig for that long. <laughs> uh, didn't really work out, and uh, and then they decide when they replace Jeff. Um, I think that's when. I think that's when. Oscar Cortaya got the gig. No, all oh, right. Maybe that was maybe that was Kim Stone. I can't remember. But anyway. So then later, you know, years later, um, when Oscar left. You know, they were looking for another bass player, and and they called me up, and they said, you know, we were considering you the last time. Would you care to audition again? And I auditioned again and got the gig. So maybe it was Oscar, because I think they that was when it was Oscar, Richie Morales, and um, Mark Quinones was a percussionist, and it was a really kind of a Latin thing. It was yeah, like a was Latin say, yeah. section. And that was all those records that had all the Latin stuff. Not Paratino Latina, that was my, when I was in the band. But anyway, those those tunes, you know. Old San Juan and songs like that. Okay. So, uh, so then Oscar did the gig, and then, you know, years later I auditioned and got the gig. 
And when so, was that? That was in 92. 92, so nearly 30 Hard years. Yeah, nearly 30 years. If you had th- asked, told me then it would be this long, I would have been like, no way. Nobody <laughs> has a gig for 30 years. That's awesome. Yeah. And you, and o- yeah. over time, you've managed to contribute more to the writing process and that kind of thing, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, welcome to do that. I was welcomed to do that from the very beginning. Yeah. The first album I played on, uh, Three Wishes, was already completely written and partially recorded when I joined the band. Um, then Oscar left, and so I came in and replaced parts, and uh, and then uh, you know, and then finished recording it. So I didn't write for that one, but ever since then, you know, I've been able to contribute to submit tunes. And mm. um, do you reckon that's been part of the part of the reason why it's been such a good relationship? Why you've stuck around for so long? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt felt like part of the band. I mean, it's a it's a it's a really a a brotherhood and it's just gotten stronger over the years as we've all grown, you know, um, you know, it's, I've been able to travel places I'd never would have gone otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, play for, for the numbers of people I never, I might not have never ever gotten to play for, um, especially in the, in the, in the nineties and early nineties, um, you're playing, you know, a lot more. We were, you know, doing more gigs. You know, the touring thing is because for everybody has cooled off over the years. You know, it's not sure, what it yeah. used to be. I guess festival dates is kind of where it's at for for guys like yeah. You. Well, we yeah, and we do we do some clubs. We do uh, you know like the Blue Note clubs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a great club. Well, we did uh, the Birds Underground. Bird, birds Birds Basement. Yeah. Birds Basement. Yeah. Yeah. Birds Basement in Melbourne. Um. So yeah, cool. so we do a mix of stuff now, you know, uh, a lot of uh, performing arts centers, you know, about 1,200 seats, 1,200 to 3,000 seats. Yeah, I think that, that that's that's where you were booked to play coming out here. I think you were booked to play the Hamer Hall, which is a kind of auditorium. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be cool to hear the, the bass with a bit of reverb on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so yeah, so it's been a good experience. I mean, it's really been great. Yeah, and so in that time, have you still found um, time to do your own project and work with other people? I mean, what's the what's the scope outside of Spiral Gyre like for you? Yeah, I do a lot of stuff in the local area. Um, I've uh, also done some, you know traveling with with different people. Uh, I used to do some gigs with uh, uh, with um, Chuck Loeb. Oh, cool! And. Uh, Jeff Kasha, I've done, you know, I've done like kind of like sub gigs, you know, people call me, you know, they need somebody to fill in. My first gig I did with Chuck, he called, he called me three days before the gig. Right. And we were playing in Boston at Faneuil Hall. There was like 11 tunes. And, um, and, uh, I, I did it all with no charts and that, that was, but that took, I mean, I, for three days, you know. Yeah, but at the time I really wanted to make a good impression, you know. This was years ago, and uh, and it was funny because he was like, "Man, you know the tunes better than anybody else." But um, <laughs> but that, that that's, so, that's, what, that's what you want to do as a sub, right? Going and exactly, yeah. you want to come. That's exactly right. As a sub, you want to come in and have, you know, you basically want to have no one in the audience know that you're subbing, true, and and have, and you know. 
only have the people in the band know because it's different, not because it's wrong or bad. You know? Yeah. Because everyone oh, plays yeah. differently, so yeah, yeah. It's, so you, know, you like, come in is, and people go. This is, yeah. this is how the song should go, <laughs> you know. Right, because you're, you're, you're probably playing the recorded version. And the guy's like, "Oh yeah, that's how that's how it goes." <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> yeah, more, sometimes it's like that because it evolves over time, time you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely morph over time when you're playing them live. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's a good point. That's what you really want as a sub. You don't want to to uh, you want to make it as simple for the people that you're playing behind or playing with as possible. Mm. You know, I think I think so I, I saw, try to do that. I think I saw Chuck Loeb play. Does he did he play in the band called Metro? Was that him? Yeah, yeah, that was his band. Yeah. So I went to New Chuck. York maybe twelve years ago, whatever. And uh-huh. I went and saw Metro play, and it was I think it was Gerald Veasley on bass. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, Will Lee because it was the Blue Note. Will Lee was there. He jumped in. Uh-huh. Jumped up. Yeah. In, and it was Dave Weckl on drums and Randy Brecker. Oh, cool. Uh, just you know, cool. kind of young music student just sitting front row, just going like, right, this right. Is, this is a Wednesday night in New York. Now, <laughs> now I get it, you know. And then you go next night down the road to the Fifty Five Bar, and I saw right, Lionel exactly. Cordu with Richard Bona and Mike Stern, and I was just, oh, cool. You know, yeah. jazz, 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 funk heaven. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, Chuck's Metro. I think it was originally um, Chuck Victor Bailey. Mm. Was it Wolfgang Hoffner? Um, I forget who was in the original Metro. But yeah, yeah he, it's always a great band. I mean, Chuck was such a great musician. Yeah. Vic, Victor Bailey's yeah. such a big loss. Um, he was a massive influence. Absolutely. For, for me, Absolutely. in terms of the, the slap approach, actually. I don't mm-hmm. know, like, oh, really? Um, Victor? Yeah. He, he, he's got this one song called, um, uh, I think it's called Graham Cracker, his kind of Larry Graham uh-huh. tribute. And he, he does he uses these kind of like sliding sixths, you know, like a C uh-huh. and an A and a D and a and a B. And I thought, oh, that's right. a shape that you don't normally gravitate towards, especially doing right. slap. So, and I see, mm-hmm. do, you, do you use those kind of intervals a little bit as well? I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, not the six so much, but that's that's a great sound. Yeah. yeah. I use tense a lot. Right. You know, I do two fives kind of stuff a lot. You know, basic chord stuff, you know. Slightly reminiscent of um, Kai Eckhart, the kind of chordal slap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Kai's great too. You know yeah. those guys, man. There's so many um, great players out there. I, 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 t- speaking about Lionel Cordu, he he's the current drummer in Spyro Gyro, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe speak a little bit about what it's like to play with Lionel compared to some other drummers or, you know, just general pocket playing with somebody of that, that caliber. Yeah, I mean, we've had, I mean, we've been fortunate to have amazing drummers. You know, yeah. when I joined the band, Joel Rosenblatt was the drummer. Nice. It was great. Um, and then um, when Joel left, uh, we had a guy named Ludwig Afonso, um, who was only with us for about a year. But Ludwig's a great player. He plays with uh, Richard Bona. He plays with, um, it's a keyboard player, um, pianist, jazz pianist, young guy, goes by one name. 
uh, American or not originally? I don't think. Hmm. Not sure. Oh, it's, it's that's going to drive me crazy. But anyway, so Ludwig was great, and then when Ludwig left, we had uh, Bonnie Bonaparte, who's a force of nature. Right. Um, just a great drummer, sings, sings and plays at the same time. Sings like Al Jarreau while, while playing like <laughs> Dave Weckl or, or right. Dennis Chambers. I mean, really amazing. Um, and and then uh, when Bonnie decided he didn't want to do the road thing anymore, Lionel came on, and Lionel's great. Each every each one of them has their own different thing, you know. Mm. Lionel's a great pocket player, but at the same time, you know, he's a great soloist. Um, Great, uh, has a great sense of the song, mm-hmm. which is really important in a drummer, and it's and it's it's sometimes overlooked and not cultivated enough. Mm. And um, when I in the before I joined Spyro, not long before, but just just a couple of years before, I did an album. Uh, um, Omar Hakim did a solo his solo record. And I played on his solo album. Oh, cool! And I played all the bass, but but one tune. Victor Bailey played one tune, and then there were uh, one or two tunes that had synth bass on them. But when we were um, rehearsing that band to play live, the drummer that was playing, because because Omar was only live, he was only planning to play drums on maybe half the tunes, and then he was playing guitar and playing percussion and up front sing because there's a lot of vocal stuff on it. And um, so when he was coaching the drummer that was playing, there's one I remember really stuck with me. He was like, he said, you know, you got to turn the page. You got to turn the page. So, you know, when you're going from a verse into a chorus or half verse into the second half of a verse, something there should be something to outline it. And a lot of people don't get that. A lot of drummers don't get that. A lot of bass players don't get it. Yeah, right. You know, it's about <clears throat> song. It's about its song form. Even in fusion and jazz stuff, um, you know, that's really important. Um, I've never done this, but I'd imagine, hopefully, <laughs> most of the time, if you if you took one of our tunes or even a live performance and took everything out and just put the bass in there, you'd be able to tell where you were in the song just from the bass line. And I think it should be the same with the drums, you know. Um, it's it's just so I think it's so important, you know. Yeah. It just and really it, and, and if if elevates both the song. bass and drums are doing that, then it just you know. Exactly. Exactly. Um so anyway. Cool. Do you you ever get a chance to play with um Dennis or, or Dave Reckle, any of those kind of guys? Yeah, I played with Dennis a little bit um back in the day. Um never with uh, with Dave. Okay. You know. When you know he and Joel were um college roommates right which is not surprising because they they have they come from a cut from similar cloth uh, they're different but 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 they you know mm-hmm. you can tell they spent time shedding together you know um and dave used to come out to see us playing and we were always man we got to play together sometime and unfortunately it never happened well still time <laughs> yeah i'm not dead yet <laughs> Uh, and you, you mentioned earlier on that you you like to tinker with cars a bit as well. So what's your what's your current yeah. garage project? Um, oh god. <laughs> well, I have this project that I've had for a long time, and it's been been 
languishing in the garage. And it's an 83 911 Porsche. Okay. Um, uh, the car's in one garage, the engine's in another garage. And mm -hmm. it needs, you know, I was planning to do a, uh, not necessarily a restoration, but more of a, a resto mod kind of a thing, kind of a mm -hmm. hot rod thing. And I just haven't had time, the inclination, and the money all at the same time, you know. Um, it's, it's, you know, especially now it's gotten to be an expensive pro proposition. Those cars, you know, sure. Yeah. They've sure, really yeah. skyrocketed in value and value in the parts and everything. So I'll get it to one of these days, but just in general, like I do my own, most of my own mechanical work, right. um, over the years, I've gotten more selective about what I want to tackle, tackle what's worth my time. What's worth your fingers you know, getting skinned? There's that too. There's that too. So you know, I'll do brakes and do. Um, um, I, I replaced the timing belt, and you know, on my Volvo once, and the water pump and stuff like that, which yeah. was you know a bit of a job because it's like a dual overhead cam thing. Um, so yeah, so I can do all that stuff, and then of course there's the bases and woodworking yeah. and. What What's your current like, daily driver then? I got an Audi um, S4. Avant, a wagon. Nice. That's a baseball I love car. wagons. Yeah, right? I love it. That's a great. I just got it. It's, you know, I bought it used uh, last, late last year. And I had a Volvo V50, which is another little sporty yeah, wagon yeah. before that. So, yeah. So, that's yeah, it's definitely a baseball car. It's cool. Well, it's 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 good that you're handy with mechanics now that you own a sporty Audi. I'm just going to yeah. put that out there. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I won't, hopefully, I won't need it anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and finally, you know, the uh, I watched the uh, the John Liebman interview with you the other day. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. up. And uh, in that, you happened to mention the old uh, Scott Ambush solo album. Yeah, yeah. The 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 always pending Scott Ambush solo album. How's that coming along yeah. now? You've had all this, you know, downtime at home to really dial well, in. Well, you know, actually, and... actually, I—that's part of what I've been using this downtime for. Was uh, like this whole setup here is actually in in the configuration it's in now is actually relatively recent. Okay. You know, I was like, I came, I was like, I got this time. I'm gonna revamp some stuff. You know, um, so doing some writing and um, practicing and yeah, you know, trying to make it happen. Yeah, you know, sticking it out until the phone starts ringing again, I guess. Yeah, God, hopefully it will. It will. I, it will. I mean, you know, this thing, this, this thing, they'll get, we'll get a handle on it sooner or later. Yeah, I mean, ho it hopefully once on once things pick up again, maybe people will be dying to get out there and see stuff, and things will just. But my my concern is, I read um, there's a whole bunch of you know really popular venues in Melbourne getting sold and closing down. So even though people might want to go out, I don't know if the venues are going to be open <laughs> yeah well you know there's that and and um i'm afraid that some venues may not come back mm. you know i mean if you're you know if you're running a club or a venue and like many clubs and venues you know you're running you're on a kind of a week to week month to month kind of paying bills taking money paying bills you know yeah. to be a, a, be closed for a year six months a year yeah. Something you know, it may be a year before we're back to doing, you know, things where, where, you know, five hundred people can be in a place at one time. Yeah, and or a, even two hundred. A lot, a lot you know? of these clubs need to run at near capacity to survive, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah. So, you know, I heard of some... Do they have AMC movie theaters there? A- AMC? Uh-huh. No. It's a huge movie no. theater chain. I had heard that they were filing for bankruptcy. And I'd heard... Um, Another big uh, restaurant chain is filing for bankruptcy. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Even, you know, some of these smaller restaurants where, you know, you might get a little jazz gig, you know, on the weekends or on a weeknight or something like that. I think a lot of them, you know, are gonna, really going to be hurting, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so we'll see. Well, yeah. Hopefully, you know, maybe this time next year you can get back down under and we can, you know, do this again. That would be nice. And- I, do a bit of play. I really enjoyed my time in Melbourne. That's such a nice city, man. Yeah, we went to I'm, the market. I, yep, the Vic Vic market. The hotel, yeah. and at that point, I was running a lot, and I, I went running, and it's just a really nice city. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm originally from Scotland. I'm from just outside Glasgow, so I've been uh-huh. here for just over six years now. And in terms of a music scene and a place to live, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. How long have you been there? Just over six years. Six years. Yeah. What took you to Melbourne? Uh, a girl. There you go. That's a good, but, as good a reason as any. Yeah, but not not just that, but just better the, than most probably. The, the, <laughs> sta- the yeah, the you know the standard of life and the music scene. You know, Melbourne's a city of five million people, and the whole of Scotland is four million. So, you got the entire population of my the country I was from condensed into a city. So there's just right. more of everything, and um, you know, started up my own band and teaching thing and stuff so yeah it just it was a, a place that i could kind of fulfill some some goals oh cool yeah cool. but um maybe we should uh wrap it up there scott sure sure yeah it's pro- Thanks it's probably a lot. Past, past your bedtime <laughs> no not quite no i got yeah i'm i'm telling you man i've been trying to uh Trying to, to, to get my schedule. It's weird not having... I mean, you know, my schedule is already pretty... Was already pretty... As a musician, sure. as you know, being a musician is pretty flexible and pretty fluid anyway. But this whole thing has just turned it upside down. Plus, when we came back to this, I come right back from two overseas trips. So my head was, you know, completely upside down. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to... Uh, not stay up till three o'clock in the morning all the time. It's hard, man. I, you know. Yeah. Like if I get to bed by twelve thirty, that's early for me. That's like okay, I, I accomplished it. You know. Okay, but you still getting up at a reasonable hour. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I still get up at a reasonable hour, so you know, it's like <laughs> you do that a bunch of nights in a row, and it's like you know, because I oh, love yeah. I love getting up in the morning. And like getting a whole bunch of things done, you know, practicing, working out, whatever, working a little bit in shop, and then coming up for air and realizing it's only eleven thirty a.m. It's like oh, awesome, it's awesome. But you know, if you get up at eleven, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and it's like you feel like you just wasted a day. So anyway, yeah, cool, man. Well, um, thanks very much for what? for agreeing to do this. It's been it's been super super awesome hanging out with you and finding out all these Man, it was really fun. It was yeah, it was just felt like we were just hanging out, so it's really cool.